this is going to be fun. I'm excited. Uh, so much stuff happens in the book of Acts, and it's awesome. I hope you are as excited as I am to work through uh, this wonderful book. And I don't know how long it's going to take us, but it's going to take a while. We'll, we'll take some vacations from it and return to it. Uh, but it's exciting. I, I'm excited about it. There's a uh, line in the Chronicles of Narnia. Uh, Mr. Beaver says, Aslan is on the move. And I kind of think that summarizes the book of Acts in just a few short words. God is on the move. In the book of Acts, Jesus goes up, the Spirit comes down, and the church goes out. That's the whole book of Acts. It's going to take us a really long time to get all of that into our minds and, and work through it. Jesus ascends to his throne in heaven. The Spirit descends upon the people of God to indwell them for the work of God. The people of God happen to be the church, and the church goes out and proclaims the gospel from Jerusalem and into Judea and into Samaria and to the ends of the earth. The book of Acts is about the growth of the kingdom of God. It's the uh, application of that mustard seed parable of Jesus's that grows slowly. Our main idea this morning as we come to chapter one of this book is to kind of summarize the whole book, that Jesus grows his kingdom by his word and spirit through his church. And the exhortation is, is quite simple, witness, witness. And we'll work through it in three parts. We're going to talk about the importance of knowing the gospel, depending on the spirit, and telling the world. Let's pray, and then we'll, we'll get into the text. Father, we come before you humbly this morning, asking that you would meet us again, asking that you would forgive the sins of a week, asking that you would give us the strength to endure another one. Thank you that you love us the same on our worst days as you do on our best days. Thank you that you've called us to live in community here together, and that you use the brothers and sisters in this room to make yourself known, that you use us to keep one another from stumbling into sin. What a, what a glorious privilege to be called your church part of your family. I ask that you would help us to um, listen well, that you would help me to preach well, uh, certainly better than I prepared. Um, sometimes, God, many hours of preparation, uh, not the most effective thing on Sunday morning. We don't need more preparation. We need you. And so we ask that you would show up this morning. Help us to remember the joy we had when we were first saved. We thank you that you are not a God who is stagnant and utterly transcendent, but a God who has intervened in history. A God who continues 
to move and work in and among us right now. We ask that you meet us right now. Amen. I wrote the first narrative, Theophilus, about all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day he was taken up after he had given instructions through the Holy Spirit to the apostles he had chosen. After he had suffered, he also presented himself alive to them by many convincing proofs, appearing to them over a period of 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. First things first, the author of this book is Luke. It's the same Luke that wrote the Gospel of Luke, if you're unfamiliar with him. Luke actually kind of meant for these two books to be held together and read together, and it really is a travesty uh, that John interrupts them in your Bible, uh, because Luke really segues nicely into Acts. They refer to one another all the time, and actually here in the first 11 verses, he's kind of recapitulating the last chapter of his own gospel in chapter 24. If you read them next to each other, you'll find that the content is much the same. And so it helps to think about Luke as kind of being Um, the Gospel of Luke, being volume one, and Acts being volume two of Luke's work. It's like, you know, back in the day, they had those double CDs that an artist would put out. I don't know what I'm talking about. Like the hit track would be on the first CD, and then you had those deep tracks on the other one. That's how you knew you were a true fan, like deep tracks only. But, But Luke is putting both of these together, and if we were to maybe rename them, because that's, you know, that's what I like to do. Everybody likes to rename Acts, Uh, but if we were to rename Luke's gospel, I might call it Jesus, and I might call Acts, Jesus continued. I I do love, uh, he says in verse 1, Theophilus, I told you about all that Jesus began to do and teach. And he says begin because Jesus is not done yet. He's going to continue to teach and grow his kingdom through his word and his spirit in his church. Jesus continues to be at work throughout the book of Acts. Did you know Luke actually wrote more of your New Testament than any other author? He's long-winded. He writes long works. It's not Paul, certainly not James. It's Luke. More of your New Testament is written by Luke than anyone else. That's just, that was just for food for fact or food for thought. But he's writing to us here, and look at the information he begins to give us. There's a reason he recapitulates what was at the end of his gospel. It's, it is the gospel, right? Jesus began, all these things Jesus began to do and teach was, was that he was the Son of God, that he had come to save sinners, to die in their place. And after he had suffered, he presented himself alive to them by many convincing proofs. And one of the things he does when he's shown himself alive to them in Luke 24 is he he says, you're going to go and you're going to tell everybody that salvation is now available. That the forgiveness of sins is possible. And so if you don't hear anything else from the entire series of Acts, which if you don't hear, it's probably going to be like about a year, I bet. Like a year of getting nothing else out of this series. Uh, Remember this. The whole thing is about Jesus. 
It's the point of the Bible. He's the point of Sunday morning. He's the point of your life. You exist to worship Jesus. And the only reason that you can actually enjoy worshiping Jesus is because he made that possible by coming to earth and dying for your sin because your sin separated you from God. Your sin was cosmic treason. It wasn't just a mistake. It was a rebellion against the king of the cosmos. It was taking a dagger from your side and plunging it into his back and saying, you are not going to be God. I am going to be God. I'm going to live life my way. That's what sin is. And instead of just snuffing us out like he, like he could have, God has mercy on us. And instead, he, he sends Christ to come and to suffer hell on the cross so that we can have heaven. That's, that's the gospel. You put your faith in Christ who lived in your place a perfect life and earned salvation for himself and then gives that to you. You put your faith in Christ who died in your place, the death that you earned with your life. And you have peace with God. You get to enjoy the peace that Jesus purchased for you. Like, that's awesome. That's what it means to, to follow Jesus. You put your belief in his death, burial, resurrection, ascension, and you wait for his return to make everything sad, untrue. Like the gospel is about making us what we were meant to be, fully human, living in the presence of God enjoying a feast with the people of God where the food never runs out and the wine never runs dry. This is about joy. There is no one like Jesus. He's the point. My prayer is that we would come to know him more. Also notice in verse 3, he, he presented himself alive to them by many convincing proofs, appearing to them over a period of 40 days, and speaking about the kingdom of God. Jesus didn't show up just once. He, he showed up many times. I forgot my water. Don't be freaked out. Some of you were like, why am I there? He, he showed up many times convincing them of his resurrection. And the reason for this is not because th these guys are, are not gullible, right? Like, it's not because they went, you know, Jesus rises from the dead, and they went, oh, wow, he rose from the dead just like we expected. No, what we read over and over again is that they, they doubted. And so every time Jesus shows up, he's going, no, it really is me. I'm, I'm here in the flesh. Feel the scars in my hands. You know, I'm even hungry. Can I have some broiled fish? And like he opens up the scriptures about himself. He, he's convincing themselves through his physical presence that he is bodily raised from the dead. And he's showing them from the scriptures in the last chapter of Luke's gospel that he is the Messiah. He's the one who brings reconciliation between God and man. And so I share that with you to say, if you are here and you are a, a someone who, who is doubting and struggling with doubt, that Jesus loves you more than your doubt. He loves you more than your sin. You don't have to hide from God because you had a bad week. Jesus is more willing than ever to love you, to show you his grace. He's willing to convince you of his love afresh. All you need to do 
is meet Him in the Scriptures. Is turn your eyes to the cross. Doubting believer, Jesus loves you. Not only that, He wants to use you. He wants to use you to spread His Word. But not without the Spirit. I don't want to get ahead of myself here. Look at verse 4. While he was with them, he commanded them not to leave Jerusalem, but to wait for the Father's promise, which, he said, you have heard me speak about. For John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit in a few days. I do love these verses. Uh, If you remember, Jesus gives the disciples the great commission. Go, therefore, baptizing all nations in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit and and teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you. And I'm with you always till the very end of the age. Go into Jerusalem. You're going to be my witnesses everywhere. And then this verse, but don't do anything. Step one of fulfilling the great commission for you all is to do do nothing. And his reason is uh, you all need the Holy Spirit. Because the message of salvation that Luke has just recounted for us, that the Word of God will not be effective without the Spirit of God. You apostles can't can't really bring about salvation in any way. Only God the Holy Spirit does that. And uh, we're going to have to take a a excursus here for a minute uh, because the Holy Spirit comes out up over and over and over and over and over again throughout Acts. And so I'm going to try to deal with a lot of those issues here and then refer back to it throughout our time in the book. And so uh, the first question we need to answer is this, and if you studied that New City Catechism, you know it. I won't put you on the spot though, but it's who is the Holy Spirit, or what do we believe about the Holy Spirit? And the answer is that he is God, co-eternal with the Father and the Son, and that God grants him irrevocably to all who believe. We believe as Christians, this is a basic Christian uh, belief, it's foundation to Christianity, that God is triune. That is, he is one God comprised of three persons who share the same essence. It's not logically contradictory. It makes sense philosophically, but it's hard to get our brains around. And there's not a perfect analogy for it. Uh, Many a heretic has been born out of the uh, God is like water. Like sometimes he's like water and then sometimes he's like ice and and other times he's like a gas. That's not Trinitarianism. That's that's a a heresy called modalism, where God just puts on different masks, right? Uh, That's not a good illustration. God is unique. He's one in essence, three in person, where each of the the personal personal distinctions are real distinctions, but they are not distinctions in essence. And you're going, what? Exactly. You're getting it. It's one God in three persons. And when we try to explain this, I think sometimes we try to simplify it and say, yeah, you know, he's like the ice or all these different things. And the best answer is to kind of say with a twinkle in your eye, like, God is that big. This is what the scripture teaches. He's not like you and me. There's no one like him. It's awesome. And God, the Holy Spirit, is God. He's one of the persons of God. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. Right? We just sing it at the end of the doxology. Praise Father, Son, and Holy. It says ghost, but Spirit is another translation. 
Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Next thing we have to answer is, what does the Spirit do? I think in the Catechism, it's how does the Spirit help us? The Holy Spirit convicts us of sin, comforts us, guides us, gives us spiritual gifts, and the desire to obey God. And he enables us to pray and understand God's Word. I also, I like Dr. Sproul's kind of definition of the Spirit's work. He says simply, the Spirit is sent to us from the Father and the Son to apply the work of salvation. The the Holy Spirit, his his primary work is a faith-creating work. He creates faith in Christ inside of our, our, our spiritually dead hearts. He enables us to follow Jesus and to, to love Jesus. He applies salvation to us. Now, the question is, what is this baptism of the Holy Spirit? And the reason I'm raising the issue now, and you'll see it come up over and over again, is because there's been a lot of confusion about this. In Acts, things get a little bit dicey, kind of wonky, right? Uh, their conversion and the filling of the Holy Spirit and baptism, like the order of those things gets all convoluted. Like later on in the book, Paul shows up at one place and they're like, hey, we believe in Jesus, we, we love Jesus. And he's like, have you received the Holy Spirit yet? And they're like, uh, no, could we have that? And they put hand, he puts hands on them and they receive the Spirit. And that's just not the typical pattern. And so I love what Dr. Carson has said. I'm just going to read you what he says. He says, what you get repeatedly in the book of Acts in this tying together of faith in Christ and baptism, the filling of the Holy Spirit with various combinations in which it has worked out. If you want to see a theology that, that undergirds this, then you have to read more of Paul's mature thought in Romans and Galatians and elsewhere. What's happening in Acts is kind of a unique period in church history. There's this transitioning happen between two covenants. There's the old covenant and the way that God relates to his people. And then there's the new covenant after Jesus has resurrected and ascended. And God's going to relate to his people a little bit differently in that. And so uh, one of the questions is, like, these apostles don't yet have the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Whereas if you're a Christian today, you do. There's no such thing as a Christian who is not spirit-filled. Right? But it seems that prior to Pentecost, you could believe by the work of the Holy Spirit, but not be filled or indwelt by the Holy Spirit. Now, that sounds a little different, but let, work with me here. Uh, the Spirit creates faith. Anybody that ever believed, ever, from, from Abraham on down to you and me, believes because of the work of the Holy Spirit in their life. The difference in the Old Covenant is that the Spirit doesn't live in the people of God, right? He, he's with them. He, he will come upon them like he does on Samson and Judges and enable them to do really awesome and great things. In the New Testament, the Spirit's not only with us, it's not just with, it's he's in us. I try to think of it like this. It's the difference between Um, In the Old Testament, the Spirit visits God's people, and in the New Covenant, the Spirit lives inside of God's people, right? It's a a difference of um, location and and filling. Think of it like this. In the Old Testament, God's presence is known, uh, you get into God's presence by getting closer to the temple where his presence resides. 
in the Gospels, the presence of God is captured in the person of Jesus. And now, in Acts, what's going to begin to happen, and in uh, contemporary Christianity, where you go to see God is the church, is the people of God. The, the Holy Spirit now resides in you and me. Now, it's the, the word that describes, the theological word that describes the uh, faith-creating work of the Holy Spirit is regeneration. And so the way I try to remember this is the Spirit regenerated Old Testament saints, but he did not reside in them. When Jesus comes and dies on the cross and rises from the dead and, and ascends to the throne in heaven and then pours out his Spirit, when you put your faith in, the, in Jesus, what happens is, is God the Holy Spirit changes his address. He begins to live in you. First Corinthians chapter 6, verse 19 tells us this, that you are now God's temple. Don't you know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God? You are not your own. You are bought at a price, the price of Jesus' blood. So glorify God with your body. Romans 8, 8 tells us, those who are in the flesh cannot please God. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if indeed the Spirit of God lives in you. If anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he does not belong to Christ. And then in 8.14, for all those who are led by God's Spirit are God's sons. You did not receive a spirit of slavery to fall back into fear. Instead, you received the spirit of adoption, by whom we cry out, Abba, Father, the Spirit himself testifies together with our spirit that we are God's children. Ephesians 1, 13 through 14. In him, that's Jesus, you also were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and when you believed. The Holy Spirit is the down payment of our inheritance until the redemption of the possession to the praise of his Glory. There's no such thing as a Christian who does not have the Spirit of God living in them. If you are a Christian, then you are filled with the Spirit. Now, the extent to which you experience God's presence in you is going to be determined a lot by whether or not you slow so to the flesh or to the Spirit. But He lives in you nevertheless. And Jesus was uh, telling his disciples about this gift of the Holy Spirit in John 7. He's saying, look, you guys, you think this, is, this stuff is really good and having me with you is really great, but it's going to get even better because I'm going to go live in heaven and the Spirit is going to come and live inside you. This is what he says in, in John 7. On the last and most important day of the festival, Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. The one who believes in me, as the scripture has said, will have streams of living water flow from deep within him. He said this about the Spirit. Those who believed in Jesus were going to receive the Spirit. For the Spirit had not yet been given because Jesus had not yet been glorified. Jesus is now glorified. He's now ascended to the throne. And we have what the disciples and what the apostles were waiting for. 
the empowerment and indwelling of the Holy Spirit. And this is important in, in two ways that I'm going to point out. And one is, there is not a distinction between like JV Christians and varsity Christians. Right? And some churches will teach this, that, that you get converted, and then after a while, you get really spiritual, and you get baptized with the Holy Spirit, and you graduate to varsity. Like You were JV before, but now you're varsity. Usually they'll say that's evidenced by the speaking, speaking in tongues. Right? And we'll see that in Acts. Uh, but again, Acts is unique, and what's happening in Acts is that those speaking in tongues is a confirmation that the Spirit of God is moving out to a different people group. And, and we'll get to that as we work through the book. But what I want you to, to grab a hold of and recognize is that there isn't some superior spiritual experience out there. You already have the Holy Spirit. You just have to cultivate your experience of the Holy Spirit. This is to cultivate your relationship with God. You have what they were waiting for. You have what Jesus told them like, hey, you've got me, but it gets better. Like you thought it was good to have God walking around among you. Guess what? It gets better than me just being with you. I'm going to be in you through my Holy Spirit. It makes me think of, of Mary in the garden after Jesus has resurrected. She thinks he's the gardener, and then she like, grabs onto him like, Jesus, don't go anywhere. I don't ever want to let you go again. And he's like, hey, don't, don't cling to me, woman. Like, it's not a good idea. And everybody's like, well, what does that mean? Don't cling to me. I haven't yet gone to my father. Something akin to that. You can look it up later and correct me. But what he's saying is, is, Mary, I know that you never want to be apart from me ever, ever again. But you're going to have to eventually eat. You're gonna, we're going to have to eventually go and do things. And you're going to have to let go of me. But guess what? I'm going to the father. And when I go to the father's side, the spirit is going to come and live in you. And you are never going to have to be apart from me again. Anywhere you go, I will be there with you by my spirit. And so we have, you have the fullness of God in you. Now here's a question. How much do you recognize that? Like, like, how much do you depend on God's spirit? Like, if you're a Christian and the Holy Spirit were to withdraw himself from your life, would you even notice? Is your life structured so that depending upon God, the Spirit in you, is a vital part of you? Maybe just as a church, would we notice if we came here on a Sunday morning and the Holy Spirit didn't show up? Would it be a problem, or would we just be able to go about business as usual? We need to depend on the Spirit if we are to experience the fullness of God. I think primarily how we depend on the Spirit is through prayer, talk more about that in the future. We must depend on the Spirit. Like these guys, Jesus tells them, don't even worry about fulfilling the Great Commission until the Spirit's in you because you can't, can't do it. The Holy Spirit is the catalyst of the kingdom. The Word of God and the Spirit of God work together to bring alive the people of God. 
as the church faithfully proclaims the message. Sometimes I think folks try to pit these two against one another. Like the Spirit is leading me to do this. I know the Bible says that. But I'm going to follow the Spirit over here. He's leading me. Like I've heard people tell me, like the Spirit, I know the Bible says that, that uh, divorce is wrong. But the Holy Spirit is really leading me to leave my spouse. Well, no, you are out of your mind. Like, that's, that's not the spirit. Like, that's the spirit of Satan. That's the spirit of your heart and your selfishness. Like, don't be silly. The spirit of God and the word, I mean, the words in Scripture are from the Holy Spirit, right? They're, they're on the same team. To pit them against, like, some things don't go together. Uh, one of my professors in seminary, he would always just bemoan the fact that you've been to these places where it's like a gas station and then two restaurants, like you go in to get gas, and you, there's a KFC and a Taco Bell together at the same time. You're like, these things do not go together. That's a terrible idea. That's not how the Spirit and the Word relate to one another. They, they go together. Like peanut butter and jelly. Like better than that, though. They're not going to contradict one another. We must depend on the Spirit and the way that we can make sure we are in step with the Spirit is by holding up whatever it is the Spirit is leading us to do next to the Word of God and seeking Him in prayer. So Jesus tells them, wait for the Spirit. And then in typical fashion, these apostles ask what I consider a dumb question. Maybe it's not. But look at verse 6. So when they had come together, they asked Him, Lord... Are you restoring the kingdom to Israel at this time? What they want to know. They, they think that this is the end of days. They're going, Jesus is the Messiah. They're still thinking of a political kingdom, like geographical. And so they, they think that Jesus is going to like cast off Rome and restore the nation of Israel to its prominent, autonomous prominence. And there's just going to be prosperity and it's kind of the end of days. And Jesus Uh, answers them in three ways. He says, that's none of your business. Be about my business. And then he proceeds to ascend to his throne in heaven. All three of these things teaching us. And so first we'll see him say, that's none of your business. He said to them, it's not for you to know times or periods that the Father has set by his own authority. So put away your prophecy charts Don't pay attention to the herald campings of the world who are telling you that it's going to end on this day or that day and then changing it and saying, well, that's actually two years from now. You've been around those end-of-the-world kind of people. He says, don't worry about that. It's none of your business. What you need to worry about is being about my business. Verse 8, this verse is the thesis of the entire book. This is what Acts is about. You can actually build an outline around verse 8. I can't remember it right now, but uh, X amount of chapters will refer to uh, the ministry of the Spirit in the church in Jerusalem. X amount of chapters will refer to his ministry in Judea. So many chapters will refer to his ministry in Samaria. And then the, the ends of the earth. It's how the book progresses. And that's verse 8. He says, be about my business. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in Judea, and Samaria, and to the end of the earth. He is telling them, the business you need to be about is the kingdom building business. You might say, well, what, what does that mean? What is the kingdom of God? Let me give you a uh, 
definition that I like, and then I'll give you my own more simple. The message of Jesus preached, the message Jesus preached is that the kingdom of God has begun for all who repent and believe his message. The kingdom of God is therefore not a place or a realm, but a reign in which the blessings of God and salvation are poured out on his people. It is quite literally the life of heaven breaking into this life on earth. Today that kingdom is both hidden and spiritual, but one day the kingdom will be consummated in the new heavens and the new earth. And so uh, the way I just think of it is uh, the, the kingdom of God right now is not a place but a people. It's all the people who have responded to the word of God with faith and are following Jesus. It's anywhere where Jesus' lordship is evident. And so God's kingdom is in God's people all across the globe. You will receive power when the Spirit has come on you to be my witnesses. And here's where the exhortation comes in. Because Acts is built around the church growing, the kingdom of God expanding. The exhortation is to be about kingdom building, which is done through witnessing. And, and witnessing, what it is, is it's sharing Christ with people. You can't, you can't witness without words, Right? Like, nobody has ever come to Christ because somebody lived a really, really good life, right? Uh, nobody's ever said to themselves, you know what? Bob, he is a really good dude, lives a good life. I think I'm going to repent of my sin and put my faith in Jesus Christ. That doesn't happen. It's not, it's not how it works. Like, good works, they're, they're really important. But they are worthless apart from the message of salvation. I, I've come to, maybe hate's too strong. I've come to kind of, dis, yeah, despise is strong too. Uh, uh, despise uh, this, this kind of Christianese phrase that's been thrown around. And you've probably heard it. Maybe you don't have to tell anybody. Maybe you've posted it on Facebook. I don't know. But it, it's preach the gospel at all times. Use words if necessary. And that's cute. I get the sentiment. But it's also dumb right? That's like saying, friends, breathe at all times. Use oxygen if necessary, right? Or if, if I got up next week and you're like ready for me to preach and I just stand up here and just, you're going to go, what, what was that? I'm going, it's preaching the gospel. Words were not necessary. And you're going to go, that's so foolish. And friend, it's just as foolish when you use that as an excuse to keep your mouth shut about Christ. How many cowards have confirmed their cowardice by saying, I don't need to actually speak the name of Jesus when I witness. I just do it with my good deeds. Words are required we must speak about Jesus if we are to see people rescued from their sins.
It's, that's just a non-negotiable. The gospel requires your words. Jesus says, I'm going to grow my kingdom by my word, the message of salvation, and my spirit, and I'm going to do it through you, my church, my witnesses. That's the business we need to be about. And then the last part of his question, this, this question, he answers it uh, not with words, but with his actions. Look at verse 9. <clears throat> After Jesus had said this, he was taken up as they were watching, and a cloud took him out of their sight. While he was going, they were gazing into heaven, and suddenly two men in white clothes stood by them. They said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking up into heaven? This same Jesus who has been taken from you into heaven, will come in the same way that you have seen him going into heaven. What they mean is one day Jesus is going to return bodily. The, the cloud here represents God's glory, right? If you think all the way throughout scripture, uh, glory clouds show up from time to time. Sinai, glory cloud. Sorry. Thinking of another one. Transfiguration, glory cloud. Jesus going and ascending to his throne, glory cloud. When Jesus returns, clouds of, of glory. It's to show us that God is present, that he's at work. Jesus is ascending here. You probably have a line, the ascension in your Bible if it's labeled. This is a really, really neglected area of Christian doctrine, and it's important. Like, usually, some, some Christians will stop at uh, Jesus' death. Some stop at his resurrection, and some stop even at the ascension. Somebody will even go all the way to his parousia or his return. That, that's the whole Christ event. That's the whole picture. He, he, incarnation, right? He's born. He lives a perfect life. He dies in our place for our sins. Then he resurrects from the dead. He shows up to everybody over a period of 40 days, teaching them about, yes, the kingdom of God. And then he ascends to heaven to sit on the throne of God, where he rules and reigns. Uh, this kingdom of God thing is actually, like the, Luke mentions it over 30 times. Uh, in Acts, here in verse 3, you see the beginning of the book starts with the kingdom of God. And if you go and look at the last verse of the book, you'll discover that Paul is proclaiming the kingdom of God. This forms what we call in hermeneutics an inclusio, which is just kind of like bookends on the book. And it's emphasizing this theme. This is how the kingdom of God begins, and this is where it's at at the end of the book. The kingdom of God is moving forward. Jesus has gone up, the Spirit has gone down, and the church has gone out. And the kingdom is growing. People are coming to faith. Jesus is orchestrating all of this from his throne in heaven. The psalm that we read earlier, Psalm 24, uh, the church fathers would claim that this was sung by heaven in response to Jesus' ascension. Who is this king of glory? Open up gates. Let the king of glory in. He's ready to sit on his throne. And the fact that Jesus is seated on his throne in heaven is crucially important to us. In many ways, I just want to point out two. First, it means that Jesus is sovereign. It means that he is ruling and reigning in heaven. Which means that he is for you. Everything that happens is 
for you. It, it, the, that verse we love in Romans 8, verse 28, that all things work together for the good of those who love God. That is founded upon Jesus' lordship, upon him being seated on the throne as the supreme ruler. I love Ephesians 1 at the end. We read, God exercised this power in Christ by raising him from the dead and seating him at his right hand in the heavens far above every ruler and authority, power and dominion, and every title given, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he subjected everything under his feet and appointed him as head over everything for the church, which is his body, the fullness of the one who fills all things in every way. The church brings to us the fullness of Christ. Christ is ruling from heaven for the church. Church, if Jesus is for you, There is nothing to be afraid of when you witness. That should embolden you. You should be bold as a lion. Jesus is for you. God is in you. He has not given you a spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of sound judgment. Be bold in your witness to the King. He's in you. Ruling for you. And friends, if Christ is for us, who can be against us? Right? Romans 8.31. What then are we to say about these things? If God is for us, who is against us? He did not even spare his own son, but offered him up for us all. How will he not also with him grant us everything? Who can bring an accusation against God's elect? God is the one who justifies Who is the one who condemns? Christ Jesus is the one who died, but even more has been raised. He also is at the right hand of God. And this is the second thing I want to point out that's important about his ascension. He's at the right hand of God, and he intercedes for us. He's our perfect mediator. Who can separate us from the love of God? Who can separate us from the love of Christ? Can affliction or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? No. In all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Church, if Christ is for you, there is nothing to fear in witness. If Christ is for you and the Spirit is in you, you can get to work for him with full confidence. Because Christ is for you, nothing can ruin you. Everything is working together to bring about your good and His glory. So get to being about witnessing. Get to sharing the gospel. Be about that kingdom business. Jesus grows His kingdom by His Word and His Spirit through His church. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your Holy Spirit who indwells us. Pray that you would help us to be more sensitive to that reality. Help us to put the fullness of our attention on you. To make walking with you 
the primary goal of each and every nanosecond of our lives. We are so prone to wander away from you, God. And yet, you are so faithful to forgive us our sin when we turn from it and come to you and ask for forgiveness. You, you always draw near to those who draw near to you. We are a church of prodigals. We thank you that you are a prodigal father who is always willing to welcome us back into your arms each and every time. Give us your mercy and your grace again this morning and embolden us, impassion us to share this good news with a lost and dying world. Your judgment is real. And you've entrusted a bunch of ordinary people like us with taking the message of life to the world. The local church is the hope of the world because we have the hope of Christ. Help us to remember this truth as we go throughout our week. Increase our affections for you, for one another. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.